So I remember this time uh, years ago. I, I was walking down the hall of a church building, and, and this, it wasn't here, and it wasn't any of you, but um, it's a long time ago. And this child shot past me full bore, running down the hall. And his mom was a few paces behind me, and she yelled out, Stop running! This is God's house! And it's not my point here this morning to say anything about the, the propriety of running in public places. I, you know, I think there's a case to be made for applying love your neighbor by being mindful of your surroundings and people around you and, and all of that. But what I want to question this morning is the ecclesiology of that mom. Ecclesiology is a, a big word that just means the, the, the doctrine of the church. What is the church? I think her argument, she gave a directive to her child and a supporting reason to that. You must not run. Why? Because you're in God's house. And the implied premise there is God lives in this building. This is his house. He lives right here. But does God live in church buildings? Does he live in physical buildings? Where does God dwell? Does he have a house? And if so, where is it? And what is the way to that place? That question, where does God dwell and where can we find him? What is the way to that place? That's a question that billions of people on this planet care about. I mean, every year, Tens of millions of people make spiritual pilgrimages to specific geographic locations where they expect to have some kind of encounter with the transcendent, right? Every year, six million people visit Lourdes, France, where the Virgin Mary supposedly appeared 18 times to a 14-year-old girl back in 1858. And so today, millions of people go there hoping to be healed of some sickness or some disability or some situation in life. They're looking for healing. 15 million Muslims make a pilgrimage to Mecca every year. Millions visit Kashi Vishwanath in India, the site where the Hindu god Shiva supposedly appeared. People go to Nepal to see the birthplace of the Buddha. Why are people making these pilgrimages? What are they seeking? I think they're looking for what we're all looking for as human beings, something transcendent, something divine, some experience of heaven on earth, some healing, deliverance, some forgiveness to ease our guilty conscience. Humans are seeking this all the time. So where does God dwell? Where can we find that, I want to give our attention this morning to hearing and receiving with faith the astonishing claims that Jesus makes about the place where the glory of God dwells on earth. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 22. This is God's word, breathed out and inspired by God, and it's useful to us to teach us and to instruct us and to correct us and to to give us life. After this, he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, we do receive your word with faith. We believe it. We believe you when you tell us that we cannot live by bread alone. Our, our bodies need physical substance, but our spirits need the words that come from your mouth. And so we pray that you would speak to us and lay claims on us and give us life by your word that we might know you and experience you and behold you and be transformed by you for our joy and for your glory. Amen. So can you visualize this scene? I find sometimes that what takes just a single sentence to record, and for us we just read it in a sentence, it, it's packing a whole lot of commotion into a simple sentence. Just, just visualize the dramatic scene that took place when Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem and he found it crowded with livestock traders and, and money changers. This is quite an event. I mean, have you, have you ever tried driving sheep and oxen? I, I'm kind of a city person. I was born in LA, grew up in Minneapolis, lived in Chicago, suburb of New York. Then I moved here and saw like cows and cornfields. And my wife, Barbara, is from Sioux Center, Iowa. And I remember years ago, we were driving to Sioux Center. And as we were just coming into town, we, we saw a cow on the highway. I don't know what you do in moments like that. She said, that's a fair cow. And I said, a what? What does that even mean? She said, it's obviously a fair cow. It has a halter and a lead. And I don't know anything about fair cows or cows in general. But she said, we got to go get it. Somebody's going to be looking for that cow. So we get over there, and I said, now what? She said, well, go grab the lead. So I jumped out of the car, and I walked up to this big creature. I mean, they're big. And I, I just kind of made like this timid, I think I was trying to stay away from it and reach for it at the same time. So I kind of made this feeble attempt to grab the lead, and it just took off. You know how cows run? I, I didn't until that moment. I just this took off down the highway, and it was gone. I mean, this, so this is a dramatic scene where Jesus is actually moving herds of animals out of the temple. Look at verse 15. He made a whip and he drove out the sellers and the oxen and the sheep and he overturned the tables of the money changers and he poured the coins on the ground and he says to them, take these things out. 
But his actions here and his words here, this is the language of, of judgment and of destruction. Jesus is acting in a prophetic way. He's acting in prophetic judgment against false worship. And what it means is that as the incarnation of God, he is demonstrating God is opposed to mere religious activity that fails to perceive and delight in the glory of God. Jesus does not want the outward appearance of religion from you. Here in this place where the glory of God was supposed to appear to people, they were more preoccupied with their appearance of righteousness before God. Why why was Jesus so upset about money changers and livestock traders here? Well, it, it wasn't the business itself, which some people think when they first read this, that maybe Jesus was opposed to, you know, making a profit. He's not against making a profit. He's not against the the business that was going on or even against some corrupt and greedy business practice, some shady dealings that were happening here. No, the the services being offered were needed and they were legitimate. These were animals that God himself had prescribed for the sacrifices to be offered in the temple for use in burnt offerings and sin offerings and rites of purification and for making atonement. Just Look through the book of Leviticus, and God gives very specific commands about the specific animals that are to be used for all of these specific sacrifices. So then the question is, where do you get the animal you need to offer the sacrifice that God himself has prescribed? And in Jerusalem, you have worshipers who are traveling a great distance who wouldn't necessarily be able to bring those animals with them. You have people who didn't necessarily raise their own animals. So at some point, they're going to have to buy the animal required for the sacrifices that God has called them to offer. So that's not a problem in and of itself. And the money changing isn't a problem in and of itself. In Exodus 30, 13, God commanded each Israelite, each male over 20 years old, to pay a a temple tax of half a shekel. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary as an offering to the Lord. So it was a very specific measurement according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which means worshipers traveling traveling from all over the Roman Empire coming in with other currencies would need to change those currencies into this temple half shekel to pay this tax. So that was legitimate. So what was Jesus upset about? It was the location of the commercial activity. There was a time when this used to happen across the valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, but now it was happening inside the temple itself. Why was it happening there? And we can speculate as a matter of convenience, as a matter of practicality and expediency. I mean, moving the livestock market inside the temple makes worship quick and easy but it also short-circuited the heart of worship. It reduced devotion to God to mindlessly sacrificing an animal, just going through the motions. Pick up what you need, drop it off, you're done. Check it off. Get in, get out. By moving all of that commotion into the temple courts, they crowded out right worship of God. Instead of worship and prayer and God-enthralled hearts, the temple probably sounded more like a stockyard and the floor of the stock market, both at the same time. 
in this place where God meant for his people to encounter his very presence and to enjoy his forgiveness of their sins, no one was mindful of God. The temple was full of people who thought they were honoring God and they were missing God entirely. So it's clear Jesus opposes mere religious activity. And we're not immune from that, are we? It's easy for us to fall into mindlessly going through the motions, having the religious appearance. We live in a part of the country that has been churched for decades, lots of people. I'm amazed at how many people in our community have a church background, grew up going to Sunday school, know stuff and know how to appear, at least to have some kind of form of Christianity on the outside, and yet don't know Jesus personally. There's no heart perception of the glory of God. No loving and treasuring and delighting in all that God is. Just a maintaining of an outward appearance. And Jesus is opposed to that. Instead of that, Jesus came to secure your undivided devotion to God. That's what God had always been after. That's what God was after even when he commanded the sacrifices. I mean, you can imagine somebody objecting. Didn't God command us to bring these sacrifices? Aren't we doing exactly what he told us to do? But when God commanded the sacrifices, he wasn't calling for people to just go through that outward ritual. He was giving them something that pointed to their inner need for God. The sacrificial system itself always pointed beyond itself. Even in the Old Testament. And even in the Old Testament, the faithful They got this. Even as they stood there offering their sacrifices, it started to click for them. It's not about the sacrifice. It's not about the goat. It's not about the bull, is it? God is after something in my heart. Look at David's words in Psalm 51, verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. That's shocking language. Not be pleased... Isn't God the one who commanded these sacrifices? But, but David starts to get it. He starts to see the sacrifices were never about the bulls and the goats. They pointed to his heart condition. He goes on to pray in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. It's about the heart. God was after contrition and repentance on the inside God was after wholehearted trust. Look at Psalm 4, verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. What's the relationship between those two things? Offering right sacrifices and putting your trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices by trusting the Lord. Performing the external Form, the outward ceremony is worthless without faith from the heart. God desired joy filled obedience from the heart. Psalm 40, verse 6 and 8. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. Again, they're starting to see it. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Not required. He did require, didn't he? Now I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. 
It's been internalized. That's the work of God. And that's what the sacrificial system hinted at and pointed to. It was a placeholder for something greater, reminding them of their need for heart devotion, heart allegiance to God. Listen to Isaiah 66, 3. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. This is how offensive God found the outward religious appearance without hearts that trusted him. Like one who kills a man. It's like the sin of murder. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. Inhumane and cruel if it doesn't come from a heart that trusts God. He who presents a grain offering is like one who offers pig's blood. An abomination. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. But look at what God calls for instead, Isaiah 66 two. This instead is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God has always been after the heart. Hearts that hear his word and believe it. Hearts that trust him and love him and obey him from the heart, not as some outward performance to earn something from him. Hosea 6, 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's what Jesus, as the Messiah, God in flesh, came to secure, and he demonstrates that with authority and power and prophetic judgment when he walks into the temple and he drives out this superficial worship. Jesus' passion for the glory of God led him to drive out everything that distracted or detracted from beholding the glory of God in the place where God meant for his people to know him. Jesus is zealous for your delight in the glory of God today. Does Jesus have the undivided devotion of your heart? Or are there external forms of devotion to God? that you've been performing without heart delight in God. Attending church, praying before meals, giving to charity, belonging to the right political party. We could go on and on with all the things people think. Doesn't that count? We sang that song this morning. Not in me. It's not in me. It's not in saying the right things or avoiding saying the, the wrong things. It's not in me. And Jesus came to secure that. Does he have our heart allegiance? That's a penetrating question. And not everyone in the temple in John 2 was crazy about Jesus' zeal for God's house. The religious leaders pushed back. They challenged Jesus with the question, who are you? What authorization do you have to just come in here like you own the place? What gives you the right to regulate worship in the temple? And essentially, they're, they're asking to see his credentials. His, what, what's your badge number? Who are you? Which means they must have had some uneasy suspicion that he was legit. Because right? if they thought he was just a, a lunatic, they would have just grabbed him and escorted him out. But when they stop and engage him in a conversation and ask him a question like that, th- there's a little bit of trepidation like, maybe this is a prophet. Maybe God is addressing us. They're at least curious. And this is where Jesus makes another of his shocking claims. He he makes these a lot 
in the book of John. They continue when Jesus makes these I am claims, but listen to his words in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Anyone who can rebuild the temple in three days must have the right to regulate the temple. That's quite a claim. And yet, not surprisingly, nobody standing there at that moment understood, not even his disciples. It was only after his resurrection, John tells us, that it, it clicked and the, the spirit-enabled illumination went on for the disciples and, and they got it. He was talking about the temple of his body. Here's what Jesus meant. Jesus is the place where you go to meet God. Jesus is where you go to encounter God, to behold God, to have your sins atoned for. Jesus himself is that place. John offers this clarification. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up after three days, he was speaking about the temple of his body. He's claiming not only to have authority to regulate worship in the temple, he's claiming to replace the temple. I am the temple. Now, that might not strike us with the kind of force or offense or shock that it would a first century Jew. So we need some context. Beginning with creation itself, God created the heavens and the earth to be a cosmic temple, the place where he would visibly manifest his glory to his creatures. Psalm 104.2 and Isaiah 40 verse 22 talk about God spreading out the heavens like a tent to dwell in. The universe itself is a kind of tabernacle, a cosmic one. And then in all of that, God made a sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, a garden sanctuary. And he put Adam there as a kind of high priest to Work it and keep it. Those were the commands given to Adam in the garden. Work it and keep it. Those are the same two Hebrew words used of the priests in the temple over and over throughout the Old Testament. In the temple, they offered sacrifices. They performed service and they guarded the temple. Same two Hebrew words as Adam in the garden, working and keeping it. God desires to dwell in the midst of mankind. And yet sin separates us from the dwelling place of God Because of Adam and Eve's sin, now all humanity is out of fellowship with God, banished from the garden temple. But in his mercy, God repeatedly took initiative to dwell in the midst of his people. He gave Moses detailed instructions. If you've read the book of Exodus, you know the care and attention taken to the details and the repeated command, be careful to build it just as I have instructed you. Be careful to do it just as I have told you to build this tabernacle, the place where God would dwell with his people. Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. That's the heart of God. That's the the purpose and the disposition of God to be with his people. He is the one leaning in toward people who are running from him in rebellion. The the tabernacle was to be the place where God visibly manifested his glory. Look at Exodus 40, 34, and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So this, is, this was to be the dwelling place of God, the place where his glory was manifested and the place where sacrifices would atone for sin. There was a designated place for people to gather and have their sins atoned for. Deuteronomy 12 gives this warning to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you see. This is not something you just stop and offer sacrifices wherever your heart pleases, but at the place that the Lord will choose. There, in that place, you shall offer your burnt offerings. And Solomon later builds the temple, not just a, a tent like the tabernacle. He builds the temple, and the same thing happens there. According to 1 Kings 6, God dwells there, and his glory is visibly manifested there. And even when God's people stubbornly persisted in sin, and God warned them that the judgment of that would be the destruction of the temple, yet God still kept holding out this promise, one day there will be a permanent dwelling of God with man. Listen to Ezekiel 37. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The temple is like the address of God's covenant with his people. When, when a man and woman get married. There's a covenant. There's a commitment. There's this love that you can't see or measure or quantify. But that covenant takes up residence somewhere. When two people are married, they move in together. They share an address. They, they begin a household. The tabernacle was the, the address of the covenant. It represented, I will be your God and you will be my people. So in light of that entire history of God's pursuit to dwell in the midst of his people, consider what Jesus is claiming. I am the true temple. I'm the place where God dwells. I am the place where God visibly displays his glory. I am the place where your sins are atoned. He's claiming all of that when he claims that he can raise up the temple in three days. Jesus replaces the temple because he fulfills the temple. The temple was just a placeholder until the real thing came. In the person of Jesus, Jesus himself does what bricks and mortar could never do. No brick and mortar temple could ever contain God. Even as Solomon is building the temple, he has this awareness. There's something off about this. I'm making a house for God, the God of the universe. And so he prays in 1 Kings 8, 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built and Paul says in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. No earthly structure could ever contain God. And yet God dwells fully in the person of Jesus. 
in a way that he couldn't dwell in the physical temple. Look at Colossians 2.9. In him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is a mystery that even the brightest intellect must fail to comprehend. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The temple couldn't do that. Jesus does, Colossians 1.19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God manifests himself in Jesus. His glory is apparent in Jesus. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. No blood of bulls or goats could ever purify the conscience of anyone. But Jesus fulfills once and for all the sin atoning work that was foreshadowed in the temple. Just consider this. When God would warn his people of the future judgment that he would bring upon them if they did not repent of their rebellion... He warned that one of the manifestations of judgment was the destruction of that temple. They they prized that temple Solomon built for all of its splendor and its glory. They came to love the temple more than they loved God, and God warned them, that temple you love so much, I will destroy it. It will be gone if you don't turn back to me. And so here Jesus stands in a rebuilt temple by God's grace. He brought... Uh, captives back from captivity and they rebuilt a temple. And Jesus is standing here full of zeal for God's house and he locks eyes with the very ones who have turned aside from following God and he says to them, destroy this temple. But he's talking about his own body. That is unspeakable grace. That what he's saying is, the judgment for your sin will fall on me. He's standing there in prophetic judgment, prophesying that the judgment will fall on him. That is grace. And that's not all. He promises that he will raise it up again. That is grace. That is just pure mercy that he would allow, willingly allow, the judgment our sins deserve to fall on him and then be raised up again so that we could return to that place and meet God and know God and enjoy God forever. The reason you can be saved from all your sin against God is because Jesus died by his zeal for the house of God. Death by zeal. His disciples remembered that word in Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was literally consumed, not just his time and his energy. He died out of his passion for the glory of God, which is why God can pardon you without profaning his glory. Because Jesus has perfectly upheld the glory of God to the uttermost. No one has ever so completely and faithfully and perfectly glorified the Father as Jesus did. To the point of death. And because he did that, then God can be 
just and merciful toward you at the same time. And so our salvation is secure. He died to secure your undivided devotion to God and to become the place where you go to meet God. He is the ultimate fulfillment of God's eternal purpose to dwell with humanity. I will dwell in their midst. I will be your God. You will be my people. And all of that, all of that comes true in Jesus. He is the inauguration of the the temple that we read about in Revelation 21. Finally, the dwelling place of God is with man. And yet that began 2,000 years ago when God took on human flesh. And all the rest of it is just the outworking of that moment. So how do you go to Jesus? It'd be wrong to just say Jesus is where you go and then not point you to him in specific ways. How do you go to Jesus then to meet God, to behold the glory of God manifested in Jesus? I think this text points us to two ways. One, by receiving and believing everything that scripture says about Jesus. That's how you go to Jesus as the place where we encounter God. The the two pivotal moments that John narrates in this text, in both of them, he is primarily landing on not just what Jesus is doing in these scenes, but he's landing on the moment when the disciples understood what it meant and believed it. In both of those, he's drawing our attention to what the actions mean about who Jesus was, John 2, 17. His disciples remembered, and what did they remember? Scripture. They remembered Scripture from Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered that it was written. In his life, Jesus fulfilled everything foretold about him in his word. And you and I have access to those very same words today that point us to Jesus and reveal Jesus so that in hearing those words and believing those words, the Spirit of God opens the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. John 2, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scriptures. They believed the Scriptures. They have the incarnate God right in front of them, and what do they do? They believe the Word. And we have access to that same word. And they believe the word that Jesus had spoken, words that have been recorded for us to also hear them and believe them. Listen to Jesus in John 14, 21 through 23. This, this is an incredible promise. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Do you have his commandments? You do. Recorded in the Bible you hold in your hands. Whoever has them and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If you want Jesus to be manifested to you, what do you do? You go to his word. Whoever has my words and keeps them, you you hear his word and believe him. God was never after the bulls and the goats. He was after hearts that trembled at his word, heard him and believed him and obeyed him by faith. I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's the question. How are you going to manifest yourself to us in such a way that we see you and we know you and we experience you and yet the world isn't seeing you and they're not knowing you? I mean, if he's set up in a brick and mortar temple and you think everybody just would go to that temple, how will this work that you will manifest yourself to us and yet not to the whole world? And Jesus answers, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. If you love him, you'll keep his word and he will come to you. That's his promise to you this morning. Jesus is the place where you go to meet God and he will come to you if you hear his word and trust him and obey him by faith. What does it mean for Jesus to manifest himself to you? I think John 15, 10 through 11 gives us a clue. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's the effect of Jesus manifesting himself to us. Fullness of joy, his own joy, the joy that he feels, the joy and delight Jesus has in the glory of God, the Father, he puts that same joy in all who trust him. My joy, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's how you behold the glory of God and experience his active power and presence. You you receive and believe and obey everything Scripture says. And you call upon Jesus' name. That's the second thing. When Solomon prayed and he dedicated the temple, he, he knew God couldn't actually dwell in a... No, no building could contain God. And yet he knew God was willing to make his presence manifested in a unique way in that place. And so the language that Solomon uses is, this is the place where you make your name to dwell. God's name represents his character. And so Solomon prays when he dedicates the temple, whenever anybody turns and faces this temple and calls on your name that you make to dwell here, then answer them and forgive them and help them and heal them and be near to them and be God to them when they call on your name, which you have been pleased to place in this building. He prays that seven times in his prayer of dedication. In John's gospel, six times Jesus teaches his disciples to do all of their praying in my name. When you pray, pray in my name. John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 16, 23 through 24, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. To what end? Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. The place where you go to meet God is Jesus and you do that by calling on the name of Jesus. You just call on his name. And scripture promises everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be sure of that because he's alive. The temple of his body was destroyed, but just as he promised, he was raised to life in three days so that you can know him. You're not just repeating some mantra when you call Jesus' name. You're calling out to a living person, and he will come to you and make his home with you and put his joy in you. 
So does Jesus have the undivided devotion of your heart? And are you beholding the glory of God and experiencing the active power and presence of God in Jesus? Call to him. Call to him and seek him and turn to his word and believe. He is so gracious that he would make himself known to us. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you have been throughout all of human history committed to dwelling in the midst of your people. Oh, God, we long for you, for your presence, for your glory. We long to know you. And we long for that experience when you manifest yourself to us, that, that you put your joy in us, and our joy is full. Thank you for giving us your word. We receive it, we trust it, and we call out to you, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, make known to us the fullness of your glory. Give us spiritual sight so that we wouldn't just be going through religious motions and not just trying to appear good without being changed on the inside. Come and make your home in us and fill our hearts with such delight in you for your glory and for our good. Amen.